Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord God, we ask that you would guide us during this time, that you would use your holy word to teach us, and that even you would use um, this creation of a film, this um, thing created by um, sinful and imperfect men and women, and yet something that can tell us more about you and point us to the truths that you reveal to us through scripture. And so we ask that through that revelation of your truth, you would draw us into a deeper understanding of the salvation that you have wrought for us in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we ask all this. Amen. Well, now I'm glad to see some faces from last week and some other faces too. And I'm actually going to do a little bit of review. So if you were here last week, you'll get to hear it again. Last week, I basically talked about some of the dis- the differences and distinguishing between tragedy and comedy. Um, you know, we go back to the Greek dramas and we think of the Greek dramas and the Greek philosophers looked at those dramas and tried to understand what was going on in them. Why do we as human beings look to storytelling and in particular theater? And then we can say now, why do we look to film? Um, what does film or theater have to do with us and how does it affect us? Why do we delight in it and why why is it a useful tool for us? Well, so Aristotle was famous for looking at the difference between tragedy and comedy, and he looked at um, a word called catharsis, and he understood catharsis to happen both in tragedy and in comedy. And so he said, well, what kind of catharsis happens in each one? So first of all, what is catharsis? Well, it's a purgation or a bringing out of negative emotions that then allows us, as we are in the audience, to experience some measure of relief at the end of the story. Does that make sense? That emotion that comes up as we are watching something and that um, gets out of us, that allows us to be able to look at it and say, wow, I actually felt that way, um, and to acknowledge it in a way that sometimes our own denial, our own like just the the working of our psyche will not allow us to look at this and say this is something that I deal with or this is something um, that I fear. So catharsis brings up emotions that we might not otherwise allow ourselves to experience. And how many times have you sat in a theater or sat in a movie theater and wept? Yes, countless times. I, I think of one of the earliest ones for me was um, was um, Schindler's List. I remember seeing that in the movie theater and just weeping and weeping and weeping. And how many times have we sat in a movie theater and laughed until we were silly and laughed alongside other people who were laughing and laughing and laughing and there's that community of laughter around us that spurs us on to laugh even more and we laugh to the point sometimes where we feel silly. Like we laugh until we feel weak. And there's that wonderful weakness. And that, that right there, that's catharsis. So, well, what is the difference between catharsis and tragedy and catharsis and comedy? Well, Aristotle would say that catharsis and tragedy involves the presentation in the theater or for us on the screen of our worst fears as they are played out in the lives of the characters. And the characters in tragedy are characters that we look up to. They're heroes and heroines, people that we admire and that we say uh, we want to be like them. Um, And yet we see throughout the course of events, the plot, 
structure and the plot line that um, different things are brought up in their life that we would fear most, that are one of our deepest fears. And as we see that noble character undergoing this worst case scenario, um, our worst fears are brought in front of us. We can look at them and acknowledge them in some way. We empathize and pity the character on the screen. And that um, emotion draws out and releases that fear from us. If you think about that and you think about the great tragedies of Greek drama, you think the biggest one, you know, of course, being Oedipus Rex, that fear of, and the fear in that play, it's very, um, Freud had a field day when he would look at Oedipus Rex, and, you know, obviously, and it influenced him. But looking at, in Oedipus Rex, it's the fear, as we watch it, what a horrible thing to, um, for him to have married unknowingly, and this is also a common feature of tragedy, to have unknowingly married his mother, and then also unknowingly killed his own father. Horrible. It's a horrible tragedy, and we weep when we see it performed or presented. So tragedy brings up our worst fears. We are drawn to pity those noble characters, and we weep with them. We weep for them, and we are in some ways relieved. Well, as bad as my life gets, that has not happened to me. Thank goodness. So comedy. The catharsis in comedy is different. In comedy, Aristotle would say, you see the presentation of the ridiculous. It's almost as though he says that with a capital T. The ridiculous. In a character that we look at, and we feel superior to the character that we see on the screen for us or on stage. We feel as though um, their flaws are played up. They're so ridiculous that they make us laugh. And the reason why we laugh in some ways is because we see them doing things in extreme that we sometimes do, that we don't tell anyone we do. So the perfect example of this last week, um, and you, you can have a window into my life, which is that comedy, what we see on the screen that makes us most laugh, it is somewhat subjective and somewhat objective, too, and they try to make us laugh as much as possible. But subjectively, the things that I, Deborah Layton, will laugh at are going to be different than what someone else will laugh at. But there is some universality. But for me, um, you might have said last week, well, Bridget Jones' Diary, it's not, I'm not, I didn't really like that movie. I didn't want to go to that class, so I just didn't, which is fine. Or I can identify with that character. And for me, the main character in that is, She's in her 30s and she's single. And I actually started to identify with that movie when I found myself in my 20s and everyone else was married. And I started to say, oh, she's really funny. And I, I realized, oh, I think I, I might think some of the things she thinks sometimes. Not nearly that extreme, of course. But, and so what we'll see is that today, the character in the movie that I've picked for today, which is called Stranger Than Fiction, the main character, Harold Crick, is very different from Bridget Jones in the movie from last week. And yet some people might identify more and they might find it more funny. So comedy, again, as Aristotle said, the catharsis that we experience in viewing comedy is one where we see a presentation in the characters on the screen and the events that happen to them. We see the presentation of extreme ridiculousness in what they're doing. And when we see that, it makes us laugh because we are somehow we see ourselves in that as well. So we're laughing at ourselves as we laugh at the characters. Any questions about that before I take a little tiny window at romantic comedies? 
We talked about all that last week, so for some of you it's a review. Well, romantic comedies are a little different than regular comedies in that they involve very clearly a romance, and there is usually a, what film critics call a meet-cute, where the two main characters, the boy, boy meets girl, and there's something funny going on in the way they meet. Very often, the, um, the plain fact is that they actually don't like each other or they really hate each other, something like that, that makes us laugh when we first meet them. And yet, as the audience, we know what's going to happen, don't we? We know that they're going to find a way of getting over that and that, in fact, they really are attracted to each other and they will end up together. And then romantic comedies historically have this happily ever after moment at the end of the film, and it goes on from there. Well, what does that have to do with the gospel, Deborah? But um, <laughs> um, so Shakespeare started romantic comedies. You see, A Midsummer Night's Dream is a great one. You see, As You Like It, Much Ado About Nothing, Love's Labor's Lost, um, and we start to see them, you know, throughout the centuries of drama, but we see them in film coming out in a wonderful way, and someone pointed out last week, so I thought I'd bring attention to it again, that there are these wonderful romantic comedies in the 1920s and 1930s. In the midst of the Depression, there was um, a sense of realism about the economic situation, and yet in the lives of these characters where there's a bright spot in this other person that they eventually come around to actually liking, there's, um, there's a glimpse of hope for the future for the people in the audience as well. And so it was a very encouraging and hopeful thing for people in the middle of the Depression. Um, so some of the great screwball com romantic comedies of the 30s, um, and we had someone here last week who was very good about helping us look at some of those. Um, you saw those in the 1950s and 60s. They changed after the war. And then the genre dwindled in the late 60s and 70s and even in the 80s. And it was um, reborn, in a sense, through the 1989 film When Harry Met Sally, which is a more modern take on boy meets girl, um, boy and girl don't get along, and then they spend several years um, finding each other, losing each other, and then eventually ending up together. Um, but the formula is still the, they end up together in the end. So, well, one of the things with ro romantic comedy and this criticism that is very just, it's a just criticism that many people have of romantic comedy, is that it gives the false illusion that human relationships are rosy. That uh, relationships between men and women, that marriages, end happily ever after or continue happily ever after, after the marriage, after the wedding. And um, that's not true, is it? Um, even in our moments of joy, there are also moments of conflict and struggle, moments of sorrow and loss, um, moments of betrayal, uh, moments where you're just hanging on, keeping on. I loved how Joe Gibbs said earlier this morning about coexist. I'd never thought about coexist with a marriage, that there are some marriages that coexist, that um, hang in there, um, and yet um, it might not be a joyful experience. And so that's one of the areas where romantic comedy can give us this idealistic picture of human love that is not accurate, it's not realistic. But what I said last week and what I continue to maintain is that they are good. Romantic comedies are good. I'm not going to, well, I just like them, so I'm not going to stop watching them. But I also think that there's something within us as human beings that needs to hear this story, 
that needs to hear of the ideal happening, that the ideal is in fact real. And so for us as fallen human beings in relationships with other fallen human beings, is that ideal realized on earth? No. And yet the desire for that perfect relationship is something that God has put in our hearts, I believe, because it is real. That desire for the perfect relationship with the perfect person is actually a desire for relationship with God. He alone is perfect. He alone is always loving. He alone is righteous. And so there's that sense in which the desire to have things happen, um, to have things end happily ever after, to have there be a marriage at the end of the story, a union, fellowship, joy, and love, that is actually a normal desire. That is actually a God-given desire because he's setting us up. He is preparing us for receiving and accepting the good news that in Jesus Christ, God is extending to us unconditional love in a way that we cannot, we will not ever find it on this earth. We will find little glimpses and little tastes of it, but they all point to Jesus Christ. Um, And so that's why I love the idealism that you see in romantic comedies. And I feel perfectly fine allowing myself to, um, to enjoy it and to look at it and say, yep, this is right. There is one who is righteous and who is perfect and who um, loves me and loves you unconditionally. So any questions about that before we start to look at uh, Stranger Than Fiction itself? I need you to ask questions while I try to get this thing to work, so you can feel free to (laughs) I'm turning off the lights, but don't go to sleep. Maybe I want that one off. That's better. Um, No questions. All right. Oh, Chris, you're sweet. (laughs) Very sweet. So uh, now that I turned the lights off, I'm going to give you a little, I'm going to keep talking. She's going to keep talking. Um, Stranger Than Fiction was written in 2006. As far as I can tell from anything I've found, it's not written based on a book. The screenplay was written by Zach Helm, and then the director is Mark Forrester, and he also directed Monster's Ball, which he's famous for. Um, But this particular film was not well watched, and it's not very popular. You don't see it. It didn't have a huge top grossing box office, um, you know, money coming in. But it is, um, and it is, I will say it's it's a strange film in some ways because it doesn't know what kind of film it is. So I've decided to classify it as a romantic comedy, and you'll see why as we start to see a little bit about it. But um, the main character in this film, it also, like Bridget Jones, follows one character, really follows one person and that one person's adventures. And um, the main character in this movie, is his name is um, Harold Crick, and he is a tax man. He works for the IRS. And he's very particular and very unusual in certain ways. And so, um, the, what's that? He's very, oh no, you're right. He is very, very, very honest. And the movie starts out with narration. And yet you'll see even early on, I'm going to show you the first scene. 
even in the first scene, there is a twist that's going to show up right away. So, um, and the title of this movie comes from a famous quote from Lord Byron's poem, John, uh, Don Juan. "'Tis strange but true, for truth is always strange, stranger than fiction, if it could be told. How much would novels gain by the exchange? How differently the world would men behold." The truth is stranger than fiction. This is the very beginning of the film. This is a story about a man named Harold Crick and his wristwatch. Harold Crick was a man of infinite numbers, endless calculations and remarkably few words. And his wristwatch said even less. Every weekday for 12 years, Harold would brush each of his 32 teeth 76 times. 38 times back and forth, 38 times up and down. Every weekday for 12 years, Harold would tie his tie in a single Windsor knot instead of the double, thereby saving up to 43 seconds. His wristwatch thought the single Windsor made his neck look fat. Wednesday was exactly like all the Wednesdays prior. 
and he began it the same way he And he began it the same way he always did. Hello? He began it the same way he always did. When others' minds would... Hello? Is someone there? Okay, so you when see. There we go. So you'll see this is a um, this is our opening sequence. This is the whole first opening scene of the film, and you get a lot of exposition. You hear about Harold Crick's life. Um, I mentioned earlier that he. I am definitely not like Harold Crick, so I don't find this as amusing as other characters that I find very funny. And yet, he's. Uh, He's so wonderfully human, like that he counts his brush strokes. A mathematical mind is a beautiful thing, and he's always counting. He can do math so quickly up in his head, as you see with his coworker. His his watch is very important, every even down to the very second and the very you know minutes. He goes to bed at 11:13 every night, and he knows exactly how many spoons and forks are in his dishwasher. That kind of just sets us up for who Harold Crick is. One of the curiosities of this first initial scene is that you see he has a special relationship with his wrist watch. He is a lonely man. He lives alone, and yet his watch, he has a personal relationship with his wrist watch. And you see that coming out later on in the film in little bits and pieces. We also saw two other plot lines that in this film, it's unusual. They're never developed verbally. You just see them, and you see flashes from scenes of two other people's lives intermixed with Harold Crick's life. But you don't find out how they all come together until the end of the film. Again, spoiler alert, If you, you know, feel free to duck out if you don't want to see the end of this movie or know more about the end. But it is worth seeing, I will say, um, even if you know what happens in the end. It's a little bit of a slow-going movie, um, and yet, um, and yet, it's good. And you can see it's not like Will Ferrell's other films, is it? He is a um, a comedic actor, and um, what you see is that this is kind of a mix of comedy and drama. And um, I love seeing comedic actors do drama because um, it's just it's just different. I think they are good at drama. Um, so you're going to see here. This is. Karen Eiffel, and she's writing her new novel, and that was her, it's Emma Thompson, and we're going to see where that narration that he just became aware of, we're going to see where that comes from, and this is the trailer for the film. So as with most trailers, you get all the good bits in the trailer, you're going to see some of the other good bits, and then we're going to go on and see another um, scene in a minute. This is a story about a man named Harold Crick. Oh, Harold lived a life No, you already saw that, sorry. Dave, I'm being followed. How are you being followed? You're not moving. It's black woman's voice. She's narrating. Oh. Harold couldn't concentrate on his work. I can't think while you're talking. You have a voice speaking to you. About me, accurately, and with a better vocabulary. Harold found himself exasperated. Shut up! Cursing the heavens in futility. No, I'm not. I'm cursing you, you stupid boy, so shut up and leave me alone! 
So you're the young gentleman who called me about the narrator. The thing to determine conclusively is whether you're in a comedy or a tragedy. Have you met anyone recently who might loathe the very core of you? I'm an IRS agent. Yes, Ben! Everyone hates me. Here people are booing him. Well, that sounds like a comedy. So you can see how um, that, what you saw, that little glimpse that we saw, that was what film critics call the meet cute, where he meets the love interest. And that's, of course, Maggie Gyllenhaal or Gyllenhaal. And um, so you'll see he hears this narration. It starts to frustrate him. And he goes to his psychiatrist. The psychiatrist says, you're schizophrenic. And he says, no, I really think I'm not. I think, I think this person has a better vocabulary than I do. How could, I, how could it be me creating this voice? So then he goes to see a literature professor, an expert in narration, to find out more. And this, this literary professor is um, Dustin Hoffman. He's very funny. It's very dry and witty, you know, smart humor in this film. And he turns him away. He says, no, you're really, you really are crazy. And then, um, <laughs> and, then, um, and then Harold Crick says this one line. He quotes the narration that he's been hearing. And he says... Little did he know, and it's that one phrase that um, Jules Hibbert, Hilbert, who's the excuse me, he's the um, he's a professor, and he hears this phrase, and he decides to spend more time with Harold to find out really what is going on. And so they start to talk about this phrase, and we're going to see another scene. We're going to see that one scene where he hears this phrase. So keep your ears open for this phrase. So remember, he's met the girl, Anna Pasquale, who's the baker. He likes her, or Pascal, he likes her. And this is a scene where his watch sees her crossing the street. <laughs> Harold assumed his watch was simply on the fritz and never even considered that it might be trying to tell him something. In fact, Harold had never once paid attention to his watch other than to find out the time. And honestly, it drove his watch crazy. And so on this particular Wednesday evening, as Harold waited for the bus, his watch suddenly stopped. Sorry, does anyone have a time? I got uh, 6.18. Thus, Harold's watch thrust him into the immitigable path of fate. Little did he know that this simple, seemingly innocuous act would result in his imminent death. What? So you see in that scene that he has heard now, he heard the narration that little did he know this little moment with the watch would result in his uh, imminent death. How terrifying. And I love the scenes of him yelling at the sky. And I think um, that little did he know, Professor Hilbert starts to talk about that and says, well, no, you're definitely in some kind of a book. And then he spends time trying to figure out what kind of story um, his friend has, his new friend has found himself in. And so um, yelling at God, essentially, 
is what Harold is doing. This third person omniscience in literature, it's the person, it's the voice, it's the type of voice and narration that knows um, not only circumstances, but also knows the inner thoughts, not just of one character in the story, but of every character in the story. Several novels, it's very common voice for novels. That voice that knows not only what's going on in the head of one person, but what's going on in the head of every single person in the story and can give you, as the reader, gives you a little snapshot into each situation and each point of view. So this is why Professor Hilbert says, no, something else is going on here. And this third person omniscient voice, isn't that what God is like for us in our story? That God himself is sovereign. He is Lord, and Scripture tells us, it, us this. He knows everything. He sees and knows all that goes on on the face of the earth. He is, in fact, Lord. He is ruler. He is exalted, and that word omniscient applies to him. He is all-knowing. There is just one verse in the book of Daniel when the prophet Daniel has been asked to understand and interpret a vision or a dream. And he comes back with this beautiful um, hymn of praise to God and praise to God for his sovereignty and his omniscience. He says, God knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. God knows the darkness in our world. He knows even the darkness and the very specific darknesses in our own hearts. He is Lord and omniscient. And so our reaction to him can become like that of Harold, right? That sense in which we are not masters of our own fate. Harold, uh, when confronted with the inevitability of his own death, imminent death, starts yelling at the sky. And this is something we might go through our lives and not be aware of our own death, not realize that this is the way for each and every one of us, this is what will happen. We will each die. And we don't have control over our own death. And remembering that reminds us that we don't, in fact, have control over the circumstances of our own lives. We don't even have control at times over our inner thoughts, over our actions. We find ourselves doing things that we don't intend to do. Just like St. Paul says in Romans, for I do the things that I do not want to do. We are, in a sense, trapped, and yet God is good. God is Lord, and God is good. And um, as this movie plays out, you'll see that um, Harold Crick, and I'm going to turn this on just for us to... Harold Crick and Professor Hilbert start going back and forth to try to figure out, is he in a comedy or is he in a tragedy? And now I'm going to do a little bit of drawing like I did last week. So if you remember this, do you remember what the structure of a comedy is for the person that is in the drama? For the person that is in a um, tragedy, we'll start there. In a tragedy, things start normal and then they go downhill. Oh, no, this is a comedy. Excuse me you got to keep me honest. Um, in a tragedy, things start normal, and then they seem to go uphill. And I used last week Romeo and Juliet. Romeo's, you know, ho-hum, going along, and then, um, and actually he's been in love with someone else, but that didn't really count because that was just normal. Then he meets Juliet, and life takes off. 
and things are going great. And there are some road bumps along the way, but um, and then there's this high point. They get married, and all appears to go well. They will meet clandestinely. And then in all tragedies, things very quickly start to go south, and then they plummet, right? And in that story of the young lovers, we know that it ends in their double death. It is a tragedy, and there's no way out. Well, the question about this film, this film asks, is Harold Crick's life a comedy or a tragedy? And this question is also one, well, the comedy, you know, the person's life starts here, and then things start to go bad for the person. It's normal, and then they start to go bad, and you have this inverted parabola. That was the math term I used before. Um, this inverted parabola, and then um, they go worse and worse and worse, and they get down to the very bottom of the parabola where they can't get any worse. And then there, at the very bottom of this hill, at the very bottom of this ditch, something happens that just completely transforms this person's life. It totally flips their circumstances, and suddenly all is far better than they ever could have asked or imagined. So the question then that um, many scholars, as they look at the Gospels and the story of Jesus presented in the Gospels, they say, if we were to just take the texts as they are, and they are true historically, and yet there is something to be gained from looking at them with a literary eye and saying, what is in them? Well, if we look at them, the Gospels, we would find that Jesus, in fact, having equality with God before all creation, many... Um, he then goes down, he is born as a human being, he humbles himself, and as Philippians 2 says, he humbles himself even to the point of death on a cross. And it is there at the lowest point that many um, scholars, even biblical scholars, will look and say, well, gee, it's a tragedy because it ends up in his death. Can't get any worse than that, can it? And yet... Those are the scholars who don't believe in the historicity of the resurrection. They don't believe that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. But for us, the, for those of us who are Christians who believe through faith that Jesus was in fact raised from the dead, this seemingly low point in Jesus' life is exactly um, the point when everything changes. And he is raised from the dead. He is restored. He is ascended into heaven. And there he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And Philippians 2 goes on to say that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. That exaltation of Jesus is through the roof. And what we see in our own lives is that our story is tied to Jesus' story. That at the very bottom, at our very lowest points, we find that as we look to the cross, as we look to Jesus' own low point, to that death that he died for us, there we find that all of our griefs, all of our sins, um, everything is made right there on that first Good Friday. And our story is tied to his story. And our story is, in fact, flipped as well. So we find ourselves in the midst of a comedy. And is everything rosy in this life? You know, is it all hunky-dory and, you know, sky high? No. And yet through faith we know that our destiny lies with Jesus and that we will be united with him eternally in that new heaven on the new earth. So all of that to say that our story is united to Jesus' story and that his story, that low point of his story, which is also the high point, the point where everything flips, is also for us 
the point of his death. And his death is a sacrificial death for us. And what we'll see, I don't have, do we have time for this? Let's see. Let's see this one last scene. This is um, a modern day Garden of Gethsemane where he's presented, he has heard the ending of this story. He sought out Emma Thompson. He got the ending from her. And the professor has read the ending. And the professor comes back and tells him, it's beautiful. Oh, it fell asleep. So we see the inevitability of death there. Professor Hilbert goes on to say, um, he goes on to say that it's the nature of all tragedies. The hero dies, but the story goes on forever. And he encourages him to look at this beautiful story she's written. Obviously, he is a Jesus figure in this film, that um, Harold Crick um, is a Jesus figure, and yet the reasons why he knowingly goes to his death are different from why Jesus Christ knowingly goes to his death. Jesus Christ is the only one who could die as being both human and divine. He is the only one who could die to atone for our sins perfectly. 
So that's a little different than Harold Crick. Um, but Jesus is also, he, he says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he has laid down his life for us. And if you were to go home and rent this movie, you would see that Harold Crick does indeed go willingly to his death because he knows he needs to. He knows it has to be done. And when he does, the author of the story that God figure says that her book is about a man who doesn't know he's going to die and then dies. But if the man does know he's going to die and dies anyway, dies willingly, knowing he could stop it, then, I mean, isn't that the type of man you want to keep alive? And so I leave you with that glimmer of hope because this is, in fact, a comedy and not a tragedy. Just like our story, tied to Jesus' story, is a comedy and not a tragedy. And um, the reasons for Jesus' resurrection are different than Karen Eiffel's reasons for saving Harold Crick. Um, But the reasons are back to God's sovereignty. He is Lord. He is Lord and ruler even over death. And so death could not hold him, our Lord and our Good Shepherd. So thanks be to God for his death and his resurrection for us. Amen. Thank you.